Welcome to Cinematalk, the podcast of the UW Cinematheque. This is Mike King. I'm a programmer here. This week, we're continuing our free streaming series with Film Farsi. Originally scheduled to play in our 2020 Wisconsin Film Festival, this archival documentary resurrects the long-lost popular cinema that thrived in pre-revolution Tehran. Though today it is best known for world-class auteurs like Abbas Kiristami and Ashkar Farhadi, Iranian cinema between the 1950s and 70s was sensational and melodramatic, chock-full of sex and violence. As director Essan Hoshbacht Riley notes, the actual quality of many of these films starts at B and descends to the last letters of the alphabet, but today they provide a valuable window into the country's mid-century psyche. Nearly all of the over 100 films exerted in film Farsi were eventually banned in Iran, relegated to the VHS bootlegs that form the raw materials of this invaluable history. To complement our virtual screening of Film Farsi, Hushbacht has provided an exceedingly rare opportunity to see The Deer, a high watermark of pre-revolution Iranian cinema. Hushbacht writes, For two consecutive decades and in various Iranian critics' polls, The Deer has occupied the very top place as the best Iranian film ever made. There is a sense of imminent revolution in the story of a former champ-turned-junkie who reunited with a leftist classmate and is redeemed by revolutionary anger. Despite initial censorship, every sequence of this moving political manifesto resonated with millions of Iranians, and the film stayed in circulation for a long time, with some of the screenings adding more tragic undertones to the film. At the peak of the revolution, the Shah's army opened fire on protesters in front of a cinema Nahid screening the film. Around the same time, the Islamists burned down Cinema Rex in southwest Iran, while people were inside watching the deer, which led to the tragic death of more than 300 people. Almost unseen outside Iran, this is a rare chance to see a poignant and essential moment in film history when cinema and politics clash. The Cinematech is able to offer a limited number of opportunities to view both Film Farsi and The Deer at home for free. To view the movies at home, send an email to info at cinema.wisc.edu and simply write Film Farsi in the subject line or the first line of the email. This week, we're joined by the director of Film Farsi, Esan Hoshbacht. He is co-director of the Il Cinema Ritrovato Film Festival in Italy and has authored and contributed to numerous books on cinema. His website is notesoncinematograph.blogspot.com, where you can find his writings on film, jazz, and architecture. Here's our conversation. Esan Hoshbacht, welcome to Cinematalk. Uh, hi, Michael. Thank you very much for inviting me to your podcast. So uh, your documentary introduces us to an alternate history of Iranian film, which has been hidden from the world for decades. Um, even when you were growing up, though, this era was over and these films would already have been banned. So I'm curious, what was your personal introduction to the world of film Farsi? The most precious object in 20th century, which was VHS tape. And uh, the tapes became my introduction because basically the films were available as, you know, black market, bootleg copies, terrible quality. So I was seeing ghosts of those films, but even ghosts were extremely fascinating. They were showing me a world which was both similar to the world that I was living in, but at the same time, very different 
because of course it was before the revolution you know women were different they they dressed differently they behaved differently so it was uh, it was both a shock and revelation through we actually stayed um, from what we see in your documentary, the films themselves are not always let's, the greatest shakes. Uh, in fact, you're able to wring some pretty good laughs out of the cliches and deficiencies we see in these movies. But you're not making the case for Film Farsi as great cinema, but that they're worth taking seriously as a window into the country's psyche. Um, what are the, some of the things we can learn from films that might not be you know, in the films themselves? Right. Uh, well, as you said, yes. You know, with through pop culture, you can uh, understand and go through the psyche of a nation, which is the case with film Farsi. But even within the domain of film Farsi, there are many different types of films. There are films which are really trashy, sleazy, sex films and exploitation films. And there are films which are very sophisticated, very well made. So it's a really wide range and uh, I think uh, when we talk about film Farsi of course especially in Persian it has negative connotations but now I see it as something very special I see it as Iranian popular cinema from before the revolution with its all its good and bad and positive and and negative sides uh, but uh by looking at those films, looking at them again, and turning them into a documentary, I actually started a journey of self-discovery because, you know, you try to understand about your roots and your cultural origins and you go through certain documents. And film is always, I guess, the most precious document and the most accessible one because it's both, uh, it's audiovisual. So you could see, you could hear. And uh, so some of the dark sides of, you know, the culture that I'm coming from, uh, you know, the machismo of it, the, uh, uh, the sexism, uh, the, the force of uh, uh, and the presence of religion, they're all in these film Farsi. So it was very good to look at them, but without being actually bothered because there's always the fun side to after all these are genre films so you know you're looking at, at a gangster film or a musical but at the same time uh, you are learning something about your own past a past which is uh, which has been completely disconnected from the current experience because the revolution is tries to first stop it and then erase its memory as you've mentioned just now, these films can be pretty like retrograde in their politics, but there is also a certain freedom to break taboos. Um, I'm surprised watching it how full of sex and violence these movies are. You point out the recurring costume of the headscarf and miniskirt combination where there's objectification on one hand, but also a sense of freedom and modernity. Can you elaborate on this tension that's embedded in these movies? Uh, film Farsi is all about that tension. It's it's uh, there is always a war going on. There's, uh, there are different types of war. War in bef- between uh, a traditional society and uh, a modern or modernized society between men and women, uh, between religion and a kind of uh, westernized uh, notion of culture, and uh, so and characters. It's uh, always appear. In uh, in a place which seems like 
uh, midway uh, between the two. So women with headscarves who are actually very heavily sexualized and they are in miniskirts, or men who go through different experiences, sleeping with different women, uh, going to the cabaret, doing all the nasty stuff, and at the end, the idea of return, which is very, very important in Fufasi, always return to to the to tradition, to to the to the, especially in these films in Iranian cinema, a sheer concept of Islam. You go back to it, you know. So it's so because of that narrative, you have. Uh, a series of of uh, of uh, uh, kind of smaller narratives within it, which are like the film Farsi could be the story of transforming the prostitute into a mother figure, into uh, first a wife and then a mother figure. So you see lots of that. Basically, film Farsi is okay. Have all the fun you can. At the end, you are going to sort it out. And by sorting out means returning to tradition. And one, you know, I think marvelous example of it is uh, the subgenre of foreign bride films, uh, which are films in which uh, an Iranian man marries uh, a woman, uh, mostly a Western European or an American, and then the over uh, overtly sexualized Western woman is just too much for him, so he has to return to the Iranian woman. But the experience, again, uh, gives the film the chance for having a kind of um, sexploitation attitude to show and reveal lots of flesh and skin, and that is the you know the the point which makes the films very popular or made them very popular back then? But again, you return home, you return to the wife, you return to your country, because they have it both ways a little bit. <laughs> um, as much as this film is a history of a certain strand of cinema, your documentary places all of this within um, the country's political history, and at its center is this tragedy at Cinema Rex where cinema and politics could lie in a very literal way. Um, can you talk a little bit about this event? Uh, so it, this event is, when I was uh, thinking about it and using it uh, in my film, I was not aware how significant it was for many people of generations before me and my generations, and perhaps for generations after because you see it popping up in many different texts, in films, in books. Uh, at the time of this recording, this podcast, there is a new film which was premiered at Venice Film Festival by Sharon Mokri, who's now based in Washington, D.C. Uh, and he has made a film about that, that event. The, 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 a new book came out. So basically what happened became a turning point for film culture, cinephilia, and... Uh, and the revolution itself, that's why it's so interesting. It's not just something about cinema, it's about the revolution itself. So people who are in a cinema or uh, in southwest Iran, in Abadan, it's an oil city with a very rich film culture. They're watching The Deer uh, and uh, someone uh, puts cinema on fire and then, you know, he also, or people, people who uh, perpetuates also close the doors so no one can escape. And different, different, the different figures between four hundred to six hundred people die there. 
so this was one of the biggest tragedies of, of, of modern Iran. And of course, when it happened, it was shortly before the revolution. The, the revolutionaries put the blame on Shah, which doesn't make any sense to me. But that was the that was the way it was seen, and after the revolution, it was <clears throat> the matter was set, settled as uh, as something which was uh, a crime which was committed by the secret service of the Shah, which is not true. So basically, Islamists, as they were doing that to many other cinemas, did that to cinema wrecks. But this time, it was different. People were inside and they died, and it really it it kind of it enraged people and became added more fuel to the revolution which eventually within within few months uh won so that is very important because you have a key film of the Iranian new wave which is the the the, the movement parallel to film farsi so you have the art house cinema Iranian new wave of the 60s and 70s and then you have film farsi so this is a film which more like a crossover not exactly not entirely belonging to one uh one movement uh but a film playing there and then you have this tragedy so it's kind of repeating itself in the memory in the uh memory of Iranians in different forms i use that because Again, this was very important for me. That was, for me, the end. I don't know if you remember. And the reason it was, for me, the end of an era was the fact that the day it happened was the anniversary of the coup, which is the starting point of my film. So you have the uh, a coup uh, in 1953, uh, which was orchestrated by CIA and uh, MI6, uh, which toppled uh, Dr. Mohammad Mossadegh, um, uh, uh, who was the prime minister, um, and then with that, uh, uh, an era of soft to very hard dictatorship began. So I used that as the starting point, and then Cinema Rex, which was the anniversary of of uh, this uh, event, as. Uh, the end point. So, uh, because of that, I would like to see film Farsi as a film which is, it's not a history of Iranian cinema or pre-revolutionary cinema, though, you know, I give lots of uh, information about um, historical details and background and information about films. But for me, it was a study of the Iranian attitude, the way of life in Iran between 53 and 1978 or 79. And uh, the, the, the idea of uh, someone, a woman, being witness to that event. The film opens with that, of the actual footage of the trials of cinema wrecks after the Iranian revolution, uh, during which they executed everybody from the projectionist of the cinema to the usher of the cinema. I mean, it's just, this is the second, I mean, it's tragedy after tragedy because they wanted to put the blame on them. So it starts with that. The woman is the witness. And I tried to construct the film as what was the things that she had experienced as an average moviegoer in Iran between the 50s to the 70s before getting back to her at the end of the film and mm. at, after returning to the, the Cinema Rex event. So this basically uh, shaped the film. 
the, the experience, the event, the meanings it had, it's perhaps the most significant thing which, you know, uh, happened during the revolution. So my film couldn't couldn't ignore it and it borrowed from a, a lot. That's extremely powerful um, in your movie. And, you know, it, of course, in the aftermath of this, the films that we've been watching throughout uh, your documentary are banned. Um, and as you mentioned uh, in earlier in this podcast, uh, they were passed around on the most precious of objects, VHS tapes. Um, but the films themselves predate the video era. And I'm just curious if you know where these recordings came from, how these tapes were made. Like, were they bootlegs taped off a wall? Was there some underground network of rogue telecines? Were they hard for you to find? This 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 part of the story is is it gets very American. It becomes very, in fact, LA because <laughs> the reason it happened was there are still um, uh, many um, a great deal of confusion involved in understanding what went on during and shortly after the revolution. So before before telling you the story, I must add that the first two years after the revolution. Things were messy. The, the 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 power hadn't been centralized, so there was kind of room to move and do things. They were busy doing other things. Cinema was not their main concern at that point, so there was still uh, some space left for people to uh, to um, to be engaged in movies in different ways and, and distributing films, etc. So, according to different sources, shortly after the revolution when home video is introduced, mm-hmm. a very clever person starts going around in film uh, studios in, 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 uh, in Iran uh, and uh, collecting these um, uh, 35 mil prints and making uh, telecine copies of them. So basically uh, transferring the films to video. There was, of course, no Iranian market for it because first they were banned and then the majority of people didn't have VCR. So it was pointless. But that person, uh, whoever he was, knew that the great number of Iranians who had migrated to California could be the potential uh, customers for these tapes. And that proved to be true. Because, so, so this is the way it worked. From Iran, it went to California, and from California, it was bootlegged and uh, pirated back into the country on tape. So they were in California, in LA, they were selling these tapes in Iranian shops and bookshops and, you know, different places where uh, Iranian communities were based. Uh, So it was... It became absolutely uh, transnational in the sense that you had a kind of uh, full cycle, and now you could argue that with, and for me, this was one of the key concepts of film Farsi, that by making film Farsi and uh, taking it to the U.S., actually, I wanted to repeat that journey <laughs> one more time because now I have a film which is made from the fragments which were, you know, once produced for uh, an American audience, and now I'm reusing them. Mm-hmm. Taking it to that country, so I think it's extremely fascinating. Yeah, and you use the very VHS tapes as the source material for your documentary, rather than creating like new scans of whatever prints might exist. You call it VHS scope. 
Um, can you talk about, I mean, this is a very effective decision to draw from these old tapes, but, you know, how did you arrive at it? Actually, well, there are, there are no prints left anymore. I mean, if there are prints, they are not accessible. But uh, uh, the, uh, the truth is that actually I used three or four films from scans, but I had to downgrade the quality because then the difference between, you know, the majority <laughs> of the material I had and the new scan was so much that it was not very pleasing to the eye. So we had to downgrade that. So you're dubbing them again all over again. Exactly. You see, it's, everything is, this is, uh, this is an ongoing cycle of, of, of technical and geographical transformations <laughs> and journeys. So basically, I my idea was, okay, I'm going to use the best available material, which I did. So there were some films which I really wanted to include, but the copy was just rubbish. The idea was to make sure that I'm using the best elements possible. And then I had some, some scans, as I said. And then I had a couple of uh, previous screenings and work in progress screenings, and it looked really good on bigger screen uh, well now we have to do online streaming again again back to the, where yeah, they right. originated you know <laughs> new compressions going to yeah. enter into it exactly however on bigger screen they look really fine and mm. uh, it's it's it, highly watchable uh, and you know the quality doesn't bother the viewers at all I have tried it in many different places uh, but I have a story about some of the clips uh, of films by Samuel Khachikian, who's my f- absolute favorite uh, film Farsi director. Uh, he was the master of film noir and gangster films. He was dubbed as Iranian Hitchcock. Uh, and I have dedicated a small segment of, of the film, my film, Film Farsi, to him. So uh, one of the things I did as I was working on this film was to put together a retrospective of his films in Bologna at Il Cinema Ritrovato Film Festival. And uh, so I could actually access for that program to some relatively good material. They were not uh, screenable, but we made them screenable by Mm -hmm. scanning them and uh, doing things in them. But it was really, really fragile. So when I saw those films in 35mm on biggest screen for the first time, it was a totally different experience. They were always good, but this time they were almost shocking. They were so amazing. They were beautiful. They were full of really wonderful details. Of wow. there was like, you know, I had seen the film three or four times, like Storm in Our City. But then I realized for the first time there is he has put a Scorpio on the wall who's climbing the wall in a just a, in a dungeon scene. Details like that, which I couldn't see before because mm-hmm. the copies were so bad. So, and that that program was as because it was shown uh, in Bologna. It was seen by many many people from you know different countries, and they, the, those who who saw the films really loved them because for the first time they saw something which didn't resemble the the films they were usually associating with Iran. It was, they were different. They were very snappy. They were fresh. They were very, very American in a sense. But at the same time, very original, uh, fast-paced, uh, wonderfully directed. 
So that was for me the turning point. And the films uh, by Khachikian in film Farsi, they are actually coming from those prints. So they were like proper scans. Um, you're, in addition to those films, your film includes clips from over a hundred movies, and this, you know, encyclopedic breadth of source material and the fluidity with which you move between the clips is really the backbone of the movie. Um, but it seems like a huge editing challenge. Um, how do you organize something like this? You know, I mean, you mentioned sort of using larger structuring devices of the. Um, uh, cinema Rex and things like that, but I mean, you know, actually just jumping between movie to movie, are you combing through each of them with a checklist of what you're looking for, or are these just embedded in your brain and you know where to find things? Well, it took five years, you know, <laughs> you <laughs> spent five years on the film, it just comes together. Of course, I, uh, m- my, um, strategy for working on Film Fossey was to, okay, I had a script and it was, uh, uh, script not only with the narration of the film but also with okay the clip from this film this scene to this scene up to the second sometimes to the frame so it was very clear and kind of precise for my editor to work on uh, to w- avoid waste, wasting time and then I was at the same time watching more films and so we were flexible we were adding more films as I was watching more films I also asked my editors that you know just you know let's turn it into a discussion and they were you know occasionally challenging me asking questions and things like that so it was always a dialogue in constructing some of the key scenes in the film so they also had the freedom to play with the material i was given the material i'd say okay you know we we had developed a jargon for working on the film like i was saying oh i want uh, something like Histoire du cinéma here. And whenever I was saying I want Histoire du cinéma, basically I meant that I want uh, a kind of a creative painting-like juxtaposition of uh, or superimpose of three or four different films which we use in some scenes. Uh, so we, we understood each other very well and it was kind of very easy to make it work because we jump from different periods and different subjects to, to, to another period and subject and for me it was very important to make a, to have a very smooth experience to provide the audience of it a very smooth experience this also is partly because of the fact that without actually realizing that I've been doing this since I was a child again thanks to VHS tapes because I realized that you know when I want to engage my sisters who were my you know uh fellow uh film buffs we were watching films together when we were kids it's just to create like a selection of interesting scenes in hollywood musicals for them so i was Mm -hmm. doing playing with films you know since i was 10 or 11 just editing the films for my sisters because they didn't want to watch the whole thing they just wanted to see you know certain scene when Jane Kelly was doing you know a dance number and they wanted to see this or that so the idea of selection and how you can select things which have meaning of their own mm-hmm. and also how can you create meaning by adding a to the b to the c uh, and that I learned a lot from watching films by directors that I admire, especially Chris Marker. Mm. And it's interesting that there's, you know, I when I made the film, uh, I hadn't seen this very long film by Chris Marker, uh, the, uh, the Cat Without a Grin. 
And, if you're going to buy a cat, it is here. Yeah, yeah yes. Yeah. Uh, and um, that there is a shot in his film, which is exactly like one of the shots in the film, which was a big revelation. It was very uh, fun to see it there. It's, uh, it's a zoom in. Uh, it's uh, The camera is zooming in on the Shah in the um, anniversary celebrations, uh, 2500 anniversary celebrations. I have that shot when I talk about the transition from Cinecitta uh, and Italian machiste films to Persepolis. And he had used that exactly the same shot for a transition, but the transition to a different different concept because he was basically discussing the idea of how how radical student movements in the 60s uh, evolved, etc. Then he'd use Iran and Persepolis for, for, for that purpose. But it was very... Uh, for me, I always admire, uh, admire his films. And for me, he was a kind of a role model of how to construct an essay film. More significant in my kind of work than Godard, who was also very important. Mm-hmm. Well, it's amazing to find that you were on the same wavelength to that degree there, um, <laughs> using the same shot. Um, there's a fascinating little detail in uh, your movie that I just want to ask about um, where the demand for the sort of film Farsi tropes, particularly musical numbers, was so ingrained that distributors even inserted them into Hollywood movies. Um, and like, how common was this phenomenon? Were these scenes recycled from other movies or were there new sequences shot specifically for these purposes? How much do you know about this? Uh, we don't know how many scenes were actually uh, edited into the Iranian, uh, into uh, into Western films, you know, Iranian dance numbers or dance song and dance numbers into foreign films. But it, people who have seen them have reported and have uh, documented uh, the experience of seeing these films. But you know, if I I can answer your question this way, say you know, you won't believe how much recycling and remixing of American cinema existed in Iranian cinema of that day. You won't believe it from stock footage to soundtrack to a story to to scenes to different concepts. I mean it's it's really staggering. And this is an area in Iranian film history which hasn't been explored yet. Mm-hmm. In fact I'm reading a very well written book now which is uh, going to get published, I guess, at some point next year. It's written by an American scholar, Kaveh Askari, and his book deals with this subject. And for instance, he has a chapter, which is one of the most interesting uh, chapters of the book, about the use of uh, the soundtrack of American films in Iranian films of the 50s and 60s. It's, it's, it's huge, I mean, uh, both in terms of quantity and the innovation with which they were, you know, splicing them together, creating a different thing, a collage. So we are basically dealing with a kind of a collage culture, a very creative collage culture, which existed within the Iranian pop culture. The Iranian hybrid or elite culture didn't have it. 
It was one solid piece of work. It was original music, original script, films with proper actors. Everything was, was new, Iranian. But Iranian popular cinema tried to borrow all these elements from different countries and different national cinemas and make something which they thought was going to be Iranian. And perhaps they were right, because people went to see these films. They didn't go to see The Cow, by the Irish Mercury, or other classics of Iranian art house cinema. So these films were popular, I guess, for a reason. That's amazing. I love it. Um, and your, so your film reminds us that it wasn't just the movies that were banned or lost or destroyed, but effectively the people who made them as well. Um, it's incredible to realize the bodies of work that were sort of halted um, with the end of film Farsi. Can you um, perhaps talk a little bit about that? It's one of the tragic aspects of film Farsi. It's something which changes the tone of my documentary from kind of joyous and carefree of the first half to uh, bitter and uh, bleak of the second half because when you talk about film Farsi, okay, we're talking about great fun but also about the tragedy of these people. And we are talking about fairly talented people, people who were popular. It's their right to practice what they are. It's you know, if they want to make, you know, the kind of films they thought were, you know, the best they could do, that's fine with me. So it's really uh, sad and uh also very unique because, you know, in other dictatorships you don't see that they stop uh, a movement overnight. It doesn't happen like that. It's very gradual. It's very slow. I mean, for instance, if you look at the way, for instance, censorship has worked in Soviet Union or some other Eastern Bloc countries, it is it works differently. But there it was just, it happened and it was like suddenly this, they switched the light off and that was the yeah. end of it. And those, the people, now just think about it. Uh, at the height of their popularity, they just have to abandon not only their career, which is, you know, difficult enough, but also um, uh, the properties, their life, family, and everything, and many of them had to leave the country. And those who stayed, I don't know which which group was uh, less fortunate, those who left and or those who stayed, because those who left, of course, you know, Many of them uh, moved to America, and uh, you know Reza Bekimov, very a wonderful, talented uh, actor. He became a truck driver in America. Wow. So you know, now you're a star, and in six months' time, you're a truck driver uh, uh, in a different country. Uh, and those who stayed, of course, they never appeared in public again, uh, and uh, that's must have been very, very difficult for these people. And uh, one of the reasons I have a clip of Abbas Kiarostami's Shirin, which is a very misunderstood film, mm -hmm. is, is exactly because of that. When I say it's a misunderstood film, it's because people don't know the characters in Shirin's film Farsi. The actresses looking at a film that we never see and crying to something that we never see. So those actresses, at least... Two of them, if not more, were the, the leading stars of film Farsi cinema. And they're in Kiarostami's film for the, in their first post-revolutionary film and their last 
post-revolutionary film, crying at a film that we never see. I can't find a metaphor more complete, moving, and beautiful than what Kiarostami has, 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 has created with Shirin. And that's, I have that scene. Yes, of course. And, you know, I confess I was one of the people who misunderstood Shireen because of the, you know, I wasn't aware of the significance of some of that when I first saw it. And I was very grateful to you and your documentary for, you know, further deepening that movie um, by uh, explaining the significance of the faces that we're seeing. Um, In addition to Shireen, you know, and you mentioned uh, Careless Crime, uh, which came out this year, which is about the Cinema Rex thing in sort of a roundabout way. Um, so it seems like film Farsi does sort of still loom over Iranian cinema to some degree. And I'm curious if you see any descendants of it today. Uh, the, the, there there are uh, f- some film Farsi films are still uh, being made in Iran, but with a major difference. There's no a musical number there is no sex so it's like western without pistols and horses basically it's no <laughs> western don't call it a western but you know the 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 plots characters uh, all the cliches are very very film farsi indeed so i guess you have that a kind of a uh, uh, a new form of post revolutionary uh, film farsi and then you have this uh, new wave of interest in film fantasy as well, thanks to online streaming and YouTube and everything. There, are, these films are now well available on YouTube. Terrible qualities, no subtitle, but Iranians are still watch watching these films. And you know, you you look at the viewing counts and you see each film is viewed by hundreds and uh, hundreds of thousands of people, and then you know there is an audience. Uh, channels which are based in uh, digital satellite channels based in uh, California, uh, broadcasting from California or Western Europe Iranian channels. They broadcast these films all the time. So they are still very popular and perhaps even more popular than ever. And here comes what I consider one of the dangers of not having proper access to the past. When you don't have a proper access to the past, when your access is blocked, you start fetishize, fetishizing it. You start turning it into uh, an object of nostalgia and longing. And then it becomes something idealized. And that's the dangerous part because this is not an idealized past. This is not a past to idealize. It's a past which had serious, serious issues. That's why the revolution happened. But because people are missing it so much, they are seeing it without the actual meaning of these films. They are not seeing, you know, how terribly sexist these films were. How uh, how they were promoting the values of a patri- patriarchal society and how they were kind of bowing to, to religion and uh, which is totally unacceptable. But because there is no access to it. Unfortunately, now people see this as a kind of a wonderful past. No, it was it was fascinating and exo- exciting and important and exuberant, but it was not an ideal past. And this is this is the way I differentiate my work from people who glamorize film Farsi and pre-revolutionary culture. 
Yeah, your film really um, helps complete the picture for all of us of the context for these movies. And it also, you know, here we often have an idea here. We show a lot of Iranian movies um, at the Cinematheque and at the Wisconsin Film Festival, um, Iranian art cinema. But your movie, you know, shows that um, that's not the whole story, you know. Um, And that's the case of like any sort of these new waves that pop up. There's always other things going on and we can sometimes get a narrower view of what we think a national cinema is about. Um, to what extent do you think this kind of context that you're providing aids in the help of appreciating global film history? Well, um, my sincere hope is that it does, because that's the reason I made the film. Right, Look, yeah. uh, I, you know, I see myself as someone who really loves showing films by other people. If I can show something, I would just show it. I have no anxiety to go and make films. I just do it. I did the film because I couldn't show these films. Mm-hmm. If I could show these films in a program dedicated to this subject so we could screen the films and then have discussions about these films, that's, that would have been you know ideal situation for me. But I couldn't do that. So this film was made because of the lack of proper explanation for these parallel uh movement in Iranian cinema. So it is a film which is made by someone who, well, I guess is a filmmaker because his name is there as a filmmaker, but also as someone who's basically a film person, a curator, a programmer. You know, that's the thing that I, I, I think I see myself mostly as a, as a person who, sh- who, who screens and shows films rather than making them. Right. Um, you're the co-director of Il Cinema Ritrovato, um, which is one of the premier repertory festivals in the world, beloved by cinephiles the world over, including many here at the University of Wisconsin. And this year, you managed the rare feat of holding an in-person festival. Um, so at the risk of stoking our white-hot jealousy over here, could you fill us in on how you were able to pull this off? Well, we, we we just it was just almost like a miracle because uh, because you know we, what we did we couldn't do two weeks prior to that date and perhaps we couldn't do two weeks after so there was this really brief window and you know the Italian government gave us green light to have the festival on as we started first and right after us there was Venice Film Festival. Uh, and uh, so basically, uh, we thought, you know, the time was ripe for doing it and people were, you know, we could have it safely and securely. And it proved to be true. And that's the, that was the magic of it, that, you know, people behave very well. Uh, as far as I know, nobody gets sick after it. And uh, I think it was very important to do it both for, I guess, for personal reasons, but also for kind of more universal uh, international film culture reasons, because imagine from March until now, not doing anything, not seeing a film. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, Yeah, it just, it's terrible. I mean, I was really losing my mind. And I remember the very first screening we had, 9 a.m., it was a film by Frank Tuttle, who was, you know, one of the directors we focused on this year. And it was a 35 mil print of one of his films from the 30s. It was a Kerrigan picture. 
and it was a full cinema or half full, you know, new full, which is half full. And uh, the moment it started, the projection started and the kind of flickering images and the sound of, of, uh, of projection, you could almost hear this collective kind of, everybody's like sighing that, oh, cannot believe I'm sitting here watching a film with like people around me. Yeah. It was extremely moving. And in fact, my colleagues were crying. Everybody was crying in my team. And uh, so that was a very unique experience. Uh, and uh, um, But after that, of course, things uh, uh, changed and we, uh, I think, you know, got more complicated to have like physical festival. But we were lucky. So it was like 50% luck, 50% lots of planning or... Or I should say 40% like 50% good planning and 10% a kind of cinephilic madness combined with Mediterranean passion that, you know, what the hell? Let's do it. Let's do everything we can to protect people, but let's do it. Yeah. And it worked. I love it. Um, your festival is known for its deep cut approach to repertory cinema. You mentioned, you know, the first film at 9 a.m. is a Frank Tuttle movie. You curated the Frank Tuttle versus Stuart Heisler um, section, pitting these two sort of underrepresented directors against each other. This is exactly the kind of hardcore retrospective we like here at the Cinematheque. What drew you to these two filmmakers? Uh, they were childhood favorites. So uh, after Film Fossey period, uh, I had when I, you know, uh, started to learn about film history and films from different countries and classics of cinema, I was watching many different films. And one of the very uh, important films of that period for me was uh, uh, I Died a Thousand Times by Stuart Heisler. And uh, I always loved that. And he was actually one of the first directors whose name I learned as, uh, you know, a very young uh, cinephile. So uh, the reason I did it was that uh, my idea was to, okay, we have we, we always have a strand dedicated to an American director. The idea was to go beyond the canon. Mm -hmm. So with, you know, after Howard Hawks and William Wellman and Frank Capra and John Ford, we started moving to the margins People who were, you know, not exactly in the canon, but very, very, uh, but still, you know, considered by people as part of it, like Henry King and John Stahl. Mm -hmm. And then for this, for this year, I said, okay, let's, let's go in a totally different direction. Let's study people who haven't been canonized yet. And let's, I mean, I'm always looking for beauty outside the canon, any sort of canon. So mm -hmm. Film Farsi is an example of that, of, of its own kind of beauty and excitement. It's not necessarily cinematic, but it's cultural. It's not high culture, but it is some culture. It is the culture of millions of people. And um, for me, the beauty uh, of, of films by these two figures, Heisler and Tuttle, were in the fact that you have two parallel, you have many similarities, but I'm usually more interested in differences than similarities that okay it's good that they both have you know tackled same subjects they have both made films about hitler they both have filmed same books like you know uh, uh glass key by dashiell hammett but 
that's that's really interesting to to do a double bill, which we mm-hmm. did to compare these films, but then to see the different ways uh, in which they 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 approach these matters, and uh, the different ways that we can by studying that the different ways with, uh, uh, in approaching uh, classical Hollywood and uh, films from that period. Uh, and like what I said about film Farsi, you know, we watched these films uh, in home video, DVDs, and occasionally Blu-rays. They're fine. But on bigger screen, the experience is gave something else. You know, I died. A, I died a thousand times. I know that film by heart. Mm-hmm. I've been watching it since I was twelve. Okay, this year for the first time I could see it on bigger screen. And this film takes us ages to track down, like a screenable print. And this was Martin Scorsese's private print. Wow! Which you screen? It's a cinemascope film. It's Warner Color cinemascope, and it's it's set in autumn. So the colors, lots of browns and yellows. It was mind-blowing. It was like a painting. I always knew that that film had influenced Godard, especially in uh, uh, his uh, Pierre Lafou. But, you know, without seeing a proper print of the film and, you know, getting a sense of the, uh, the way he has used colors, you couldn't actually see the connection. So that screening instantly made the connection. So it is important to see these films. I'm also afraid of, which this is something which is happening a lot in like big film institutions, that just same names over and over again. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a big danger. Of course, it is important to introduce the younger audiences to Howard Hawks and to Hitchcock and to, you know, all the standard classics. But then what about these films? Because the majority of films made in, let's say, American film history are not made by the directors whose names are, you know, uh, uh, names which the film his film historians and film books have uh, approved and endorsed as great figures. So it is really important to do something different, to go in different direction. What I do, I see as a search for beauty. I'm not saying that I do Heisler and Frank Tuttle are great masters. They are. I personally believe they are. But I'm not. when I go on a stage and introduce the film there, I don't say, you know, oh, great masters. We are just searching. Let's mm-hmm. search together. And let's search the way it should be done by going to the best uh, screening material available and seeing it in its original format. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, at the same time over here, we didn't have the chance to attend this year. So uh, there was some streaming from Retrovado that we were able to enjoy um, here in Madison. Um, and to bring it back to Iranian cinema, there was a beautiful restoration of a remarkable film from 1976 called Chess of the Wind that I hope to be able to bring to our Cinematheque whenever in some distant future when we can reopen. Um, this is a film that was produced at the same time as many of those that are featured in your film, but belongs to a separate tradition. Um, can you tell us a little bit about its place in Iranian film history? It had no place in Iranian film history until last August. Again, this is something I think this is something we should do all the time to to go and search for the missing pieces. So what is this missing piece? This missing piece is a film which was 
screened at Tehran International Film Festival. A very poor screening in terms of the quality of uh, projection, but also in terms of reception of the film. Almost booed. Wow. Then nothing happened. The film, you know, they shelved the film. The revolution happened. The film was banned and then it was lost. And then the film was found in Iran. It was shipped out of the country, sent to us, and we worked on the restoration of the film with the support and help of Film Foundation uh, as a part of the series of uh, World Cinema Foundation films we have restored in Polonia so far. Uh, great titles of, you know, Latin American cinemas, Asian and African cinemas. So this film is, it looks like Visconti. Mm -hmm. It feels like Henri-Georges Clouseau. It plays like Robert Bresson. It uh, moves like Margaret Duras. It's everything, but again, it is something very unique. It's something essentially Iranian. It has its own identity. You know, it has these elements of some of the best art house films of the 60s and 70s to create something, a, a story which is, uh, I think, very significant for uh, for that period because it kind of, it almost anticipates the Iranian revolution, the film. Of course, it's not the only film which does that. In film arts, you see that there are other films like The Deer in which there is a sense of a revolution to come. But this does it with the highest quality, the painting-like, the painterly details of a a, a masterpiece made in the 70s. And yet, this is a film which was not seen at all, not by Iranian, not by non-Iranian. It was completely lost and forgotten until we could work on it and screen it again. And now, people who have seen the film, you know, it it turned out to be one of the biggest discoveries of Il Cinema Ritrovato this year for many members of the audience. And based on the write-ups, every single one of them mentions this film. Uh, and uh, I hope you could screen it in the future because this is not a film for online streaming. Uh, you should you should watch this on big screen. There are so many wonderful details in it and the colors are... Uh, Absolutely amazing. It's a total discovery, and I'm so glad, that, uh, grateful to your festival for bringing it to us. Um, I guess I'd like to close here by um, talking about another significant film from that era, which you have given us an exceedingly rare opportunity to watch as part of our uh, streaming selections this week, which is The Deer, which looms over um, your documentary and uh, this era in general. Um, I haven't had the chance to see it yet, but I was wondering if you could sort of set the stage for our listeners um, about uh, the deer. Gavazdra, uh, known in English as the deer, uh, uh, is a film that uh, one of the most significant Iranian directors of the late sixties and seventies, who's also who's still active to this day, making films, making a new film almost every. A year, uh, Masoud Kimyai made in 1974. So this film uh, is very interesting because it shows that the the world of Iranian popular cinema and the world of Iranian art house cinema were not too totally uh, 
separate universes. They occasionally overlapped. And this film is one of the rare examples of where and when the two overlap. When I say overlap, I mean you have a very popular and extremely talented star in this film who usually appeared in you know, film farces uh, and a lot of dramas and comedies, Behrouz uh, Wussouri. And uh, you have some tiny elements which are coming from popular films, but then you have a film which in its plot and its treatment, its treatment of the story is almost like a militant film. It's very unusual because it's both very militant or militant looking and also very melodramatic. So you have guns and tears combined and you don't see that in the 70s. You have militant films in, let's say, Latin America in the 70s and when they are militant, they are really engaged with the political agenda. But this is basically a melodrama. Lots, it's it's almost a tearjerker. Uh, and uh, it's a film which uh, follows the story of two friends. Uh, and uh, one is a revolutionary, one is a, one is a drug addict. And through that story, it beautifully captures the, the, the general mood in Iranian society, the kind of the, the anxiety, uh, the fear, uh, the fatigue, uh, the change for hope, the restlessness of Iranian society at that time, leading to the Iranian revolution of 1978, 79. And it became so popular because, because, of, because of its uh, direction, because of its leading actor, because of its music, in particular, music is very important in that film, that it returned to screens more than once. But what is it? Uh, uh, interesting about the film is that Iranians at that time didn't see the film the way that the audience of uh, in Wisconsin and behind are going to see the film because the film was censored. The ending was completely different. Wow. I'm not going to uh, reveal the ending and spoil it for you, but I'm hoping to um, uh, provide you for the online streaming of the film with the censored ending so you could see after watching the original ending you could watch the censored ending and it's completely completely different it's the silliest ending possible <laughs> but it's the even though the end, the ending was really silly and it was clear that everybody in Iran knew that this film was censored they mm. had forced him to shoot a new ending for the film they, everybody, so that was part of the myth it's a film which comes with lots of myth stories about the way it was produced and it was censored. And then you have the tragic event of Cinema Rex in southwest Iran when the deer was being shown, when the cinema uh, was uh, set on fire by the revolutionaries or these Islamists. So this is a film which is central in my narrative and story of film Farsi, but even if you haven't watched Film Farsi or if you're not going to watch Film Farsi, no problem. Go and watch because this this one, because this is a unique film and uh, it is uh, often considered as the greatest Iranian film ever made, in quotation marks. This is something that Iranian critics every 10 years 
like you know there's a national poll and this film is always number one uh, there are certain things in the film which I think are perhaps a bit dated but there are also many amazing scenes uh, in it it's a film very difficult it's a film which is very difficult to translate because they're speaking the language of the street of the 70s so it's a kind of a piece of 70s Iranian culture uh, but I think uh, now that we have this opportunity to 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 see this for the first time with English subtitle and a in a very good uh, copy and a complete copy I think you should grab this opportunity this is mm, Definitely more essential than watching film fights. You try to see both, but you know, go for if you want to pick one, go for the deer. Well, I hope everybody takes the chance to see both of them. I can't wait to see the deer. Um, Asan, thank you so much for making it available to us and for taking the time to talk to us today. My pleasure, my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Oh, I'm a